Dean Hern Chen, and you're listening to Southeast Asia, etc. This is a podcast about current events happening around the region, and I started it because I wanted my colleagues to essentially just explain some things to me. This episode is on Singapore. Singapore is the most prosperous country in Southeast Asia,、uh, probably because of how developed it is and because it's very rich. Other countries in the region often invoke Singapore as the one to aspire to, but it also has a serious problem when it comes to freedom of expression. There are many laws that restrict what can be said, what can be done, and what can be published. Singapore's broadcast and print media are effectively under government control, and the internet is basically the final platform for independent news coverage. But that might soon all change, because the government has been discussing the enactment of a new law to combat fake news online. I'm using the word fake news. Um, you can't see it, but I'm putting quote marks up right now. That's because the government has not defined what fake news actually means, and so critics are worried that this could be used as a political tool to suppress free speech. Earlier this year, a public hearing was convened to discuss whether or not this law should happen, and they invited different people to speak on this panel, including journalists. One of them was Kirsten Hahn, who I spoke to for this episode. Kirsten is a freelance reporter based in Singapore, and she's also the editor in chief for New Narrative, which is a website that runs stories on Southeast Asia. They also host democracy classrooms for interested people. So I spoke to her over Skype about what it's like to report in Singapore, what Singaporeans think about their limits to free speech, and what this push. For an anti-fake news law, actually means. Yeah, I started working on these issues kind of largely by chance because, like, I grew up in this very comfortable middle-class Chinese Singaporean family, and I just wasn't very political growing up. Right up till I came back after my undergrad degree, so I studied in New Zealand, and then I moved home, and that was when I started. Kind of volunteering with the online citizen, which is an independent news website. Was it something you were aware of growing up? Sort of this idea of Singapore that maybe average Singaporeans might see, and then the Singapore that you were exposed to while working. Yeah, it was just kind of, I guess, as I was reading more and learning more, kind of realizing that there were a lot of things I'd taken for granted, or there were a lot of assumptions about Singapore that I had that weren't true. Or were only part of the picture, and so the more I learned that, the more I became more interested in finding out what's been left out. And then that's where you see this whole other kind of Singapore that's quite different from what I grew up assuming was the definitive picture of Singapore. So when I started kind of reporting firstly as a volunteer, and then later started to go into it professionally, there were just a lot of things that. Taken for granted about Singapore growing up, that I had to question. So, for example, a lot of my friends growing up had domestic workers at home, and then you know I'd go over to their house to hang out, and they'd have domestic workers there, and everybody called them maids. And I just never really thought about you know what are the labour conditions like, what are the terms of their employment,、uh, what 
about the regional inequality that even leads to so many women from around the region coming to Singapore. And that became a big issue that I've continually reported on in Singapore, migrant workers. And, you know, it was just all around me as a kid. I never, ever thought about it until I started looking deeper and paying attention. Mm. When um when it comes to any sort of restriction you have while reporting, do you feel the pressure or do you feel like you have to be very careful about how you write or report on certain things? Generally, not as much as people might think. So Singapore is a bit odd sometimes because it's I find that when I talk to people, it's simultaneously more and less free than people think because it's not really so controlling that, you know, you have physical harassment or threats to journalist safety. It's not like that. But at the same time, you are aware that you have to be a little bit careful. Uh, you have to be precise in the language that you use. Make sure that you back everything up and that you don't inadvertently insinuate something that you didn't quite mean to say. So that's not necessarily a bad thing if it pushes you to be more meticulous about your fact-checking and about how you phrase things. Uh, I actually find that for day-to-day -day journalism, what's more stuck is how difficult it is to get information. It's really difficult to get information out of government ministries, get comments from government agencies. Sometimes it can be really difficult to get people to speak on the record about particular things. They don't want to talk about it. And that's where it seems most out, that there is self-censorship, not just among journalists, but sources as well. Is there any sort of thing that foreign reporters get wrong when they're... I mean, besides, you know, the, the usual stuff of, um, you know, where they, they go to the same... The same old um, narrative of Singapore is and like, you know, you cannot have chewing gum or <laughs> I don't know, all of these things. Um, do you think there's other things that foreign reporters might get wrong? Um, I think what's really difficult and so they might get wrong and I don't, I never really know how much to fault them for getting it wrong. So what's really difficult is to try to explain just how things kind of work. So there isn't really like, oppression that you can see very clearly most of the time and if you talk to average Singaporeans they are actually quite likely to happily tell you that it's pretty free but at the same time there is a culture of self-censorship there is some culture of fear that you know saying particular things talking about politics will get you in trouble and it's quite difficult to you know as a writer as a writer as a journalist express that sort of um, almost a sort of cognitive dissonance that there's a lot of unspoken stuff that's under the surface and it's quite difficult to express that to explain and so often then you know either Singapore starts to sound like a very oppressive state or it sounds like oh you know it's so advanced it's so rich everyone trusts the government this is what Singaporeans want. Uh, the government does so well in elections. Mm -hmm. And then you lose that nuance of, yes, they do very well in elections, but there's all this other stuff. So like recently, there was a op-ed by an economist in Bloomberg that was saying, you know, Singapore is a model to learn from. And, you know, the government does so well in elections, but completely dismisses the political aspects of how elections work <laughs> and how they're skewed and how it's unfair. And... Yeah, a lot of Singaporeans vote for the PAP, but there's a lot of other things going on there as well, um, including among 
some Singaporeans the belief that your vote is not secret. Um, and then there's all the gerrymandering and you know the different obstacles that opposition parties have to face. And so that's really difficult to convey when a lot of the time there's not a lot of space for reporters to put all that in because they only once in a long while do they report in Singapore. Mm. When I was reading up on the select committee on deliberate online falsehoods, I was wondering why did the government decide to do this now? Yeah, uh, that that wasn't super clear. Just select committees these days in Singapore are really rare. I believe that like in Lee Sien Long's administration, we probably only have four of them. So, so they are super rare. So to, to then say that they wanted one was a novelty. And it was a bit of a, a surprise that the government wanted a select committee because the year before, the law minister was already quite confidently saying that he thinks legislation is a no-brainer, that there will be laws. You know, so so there was a lot of skepticism of are they doing it just um you know like we say in Singapore just for wayang, mm. just for show, and there was a lot of skepticism about whether to trust this process. But then I think for civil society in the end, it was kind of this sense of well, wayang select committee is better than no select committee, and just having the bill push through. And so when you you were um asked to testify, is that the right word to use for this? Testify. Um, I've used it. I'm well. It's not really a trial. It, they called it an open hearing. Open so hearing. Guess, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Even though, like, there was, uh, I mean, from the little that I listened to, there did seem to be a a bit of a like a trial like aspect to the question. Yeah. Well, it's an open hearing because it's open to the public. So that's the open part. Mm. And were you surprised? I mean, was there any part of that experience that you felt sort of surprised by? Or was it exactly how you kind of expected it to go? Mm, well, at first, I kind of just thought that they wouldn't call me. Like, to be called was a little bit of a surprise, but like a pleasant surprise of like, oh, you know, you will get a chance to speak. And then so my expectation then shifted to, okay, so they, maybe they will let me speak in an open hearing but I wouldn't hold my breath chances are they would still then find in favor of you know having a law but they would at least allow independent journalists and activists to speak and so kind of thought well at least then that platform would be useful so even if they don't agree with me ultimately I could use that platform to like insert a few points into the discourse that wasn't really brought up in the mainstream media before so that's kind of what I expected there would be a lot to speak but maybe not taken super seriously. What were you hoping to speak on? I was hoping to bring up the point that we already have a lot of laws that regulate speech in Singapore, that if we wanted to regulate the dissemination of hoaxes or rumours and fake news, we actually have a lot of laws that can cover that and that we didn't need a new law uh, and that this was really unnecessary. In fact, it's not helpful to Singaporeans. In fact, we should have more openness rather than more laws and that we should have a freedom of information so that people can fact check, so that people, we can build trust. And so a lot of my submission had to do with how to be more open and build trust rather than pass more laws that restrict freedom of expression. So it, it wasn't exactly expected that it would turn out into that sort of travel-like atmosphere and certainly not that it would have gone on for five hours <laughs> about what five hours long is that what you said 
Yes, yeah, there were four of us, and we were there for five hours. Here are two snippets from the public hearing that Kirsten took part in. This one is where a Singaporean MP is asking what is actually considered a deliberate falsehood. So you have you have truth on one hand, you have falsehoods on the other. Closer to the truth side, you will have opinions based on truth. You have misimpressions, you have mistakes, you have misinterpretation, misrepresentation, and then falsehood. So there's a spectrum. You would accept. Yes, and that spectrum is key to today's discussion. And I think what you will want to say is that one must have a differentiated response or a variegated response to what you might find on that spectrum. Not just a different response, but also concern over who gets to decide what lies where on the spectrum. And this one has the Minister of Home Affairs giving them an example and asking their thoughts on whether or not it's a deliberate, factual lie. Okay, let me give you another example. A suggestion that uh, President Jokowi is Christian. You think that shades of truth in that? This is where the spectrum comes in. So such things so that are clearly me, false and could be debunked would be on one end of the no, no, wait, spectrum wait, wait, as a clear falsehood. Me, the question is, are there shades of truth in such a statement? Not in this case, but unfortunately, right. content is not okay. always this clear. So I think. Well, they didn't. They they brought up all these examples, but none of them were Singaporean examples, and it was really difficult to kind of articulate particular points and and argue for particular principles. The in the way that they ask questions, because it's all just like, would you agree, and then that. That leaves you with the option of yes, I agree or no, I disagree. But there was so much more to that that needed to be talked about. Can you give us some examples that they brought up? So they brought up this one、um, really offensive comment of like a, a blonde woman who's supposed to be like European,、um, being attacked, killed, and or raped by brown immigrants, and like her baby that she's. Apparently, just given birth to is also being killed by these immigrants, and it was this really offensive xenophobic comment、mm-hmm. that had apparently been circulating in Germany. And they were like, "In this case, would you take it down, or you know, should we be able to compel takedown?" And we were trying to make the point that yes, something should be done, but it doesn't mean that the government should have the power to order takedowns, and that social media platforms should be responsible and uphold their own standards and community standards. But it also doesn't mean that we out. All the responsibility of deciding what we can or can't see to these platforms because they are private companies. So it's actually this really complex sort of dilemma that we didn't actually get to discuss properly because it was framed as "Would you agree in this scenario?" Another example they gave was like rumors of、um, a rape had happened in Myanmar. Which I think was like it was like a rumor that a Muslim man had raped a Buddhist woman, and that actually sparked violence, and there were mobs. And yeah, that that is a problem. But at the same time, I was trying to say that doesn't mean that the government should have the power to compel takedowns. And and then because of the way it was framed, it just became a so even if it caused a mob, you wouldn't take it down sort of thing. Yeah. It just became really difficult to articulate, you know, the principles behind it. And I was also trying to bring up that Myanmar is in a very different media, digital, and information literacy situation from Singapore, with very different context. But yeah, it just kind of got lost in all these examples for about for a few hours, and then they moved on to questioning us individually. 
to questioning you guys individually? Yeah, so they started as questions to a group. Then after that, they would focus on individual submissions. For me, what they wanted to know was why I had quoted Human Rights Watch in my submissions because Human Rights Watch had uh, issued this report the year before on freedom of expression in Singapore. It was a very comprehensive report um, that documented all these legal cases and other cases of clampdowns on free speech. And they had wanted Human Rights Watch to appear before the select committee and defend the report because the PAP policy forum in their submission to the committee called it a deliberate falsehood. A deliberate falsehood. Yeah, they said the Human Rights Watch report was a deliberate falsehood, even though they never actually pointed to a single factual mistake. And then the, the thing that was quite surprising that they pushed back on was on me arguing for Freedom of Information Act. The committee member questioning me brought up these things like, um, do you think we should have a Freedom of Information Act even if it compromises national security? And so it seemed from the questions that it was trying to build a case that the Freedom of Information Act is not a good idea. I was surprised that they would actually bother in the select committee to push back on that. So I guess you got the sense that in the way that the questions were phrased, that they already had something got, in mind. I got the sense that, yeah, I did get the sense that they did not want a Freedom of Information Act. But I also got the sense that they did want to pass some new legislation regarding fake news. But I didn't really get a sense of exactly how they would define what a deliberate online falsehood is. And that was the worrying part. So I was trying to ask what the definition would be and I didn't get a straight answer. In fact, like at the time, I kind of let it go. And now I regret it because I came back and I read the transcript. And that answer was even more vague than it sounded in person. Yeah. Yeah. And so we didn't get any clear idea of what a, a working legal definition of a deliberate online falsehood would be, which is one of the concerns that in the absence of a clear definition, it would just be a very broad law. And until today, I don't think we have an answer of how it's going to be defined. Mm-hmm. And and so if they were to decide to pass uh, whatever new law it is to legislate on like online falsehoods, what would be your worry for like the average person in Singapore? Let's not even go into like journalists, like let's just say for the average person? I think the average person, they might be, I, I'm, I worry that there will be more fear and more uncertainty about what you can or can't say. You know, that people might start to self-censor even more mm. because the law is so vague that they just don't really know what they can say. And that would be for the general public. But for civil society, I think the fear is that the law wouldn't be used against everybody but it could be used against particular people Mm -hmm. so they're not going to go out and arrest everyone who shares something fake but it's another tool with which you could use against activists you know if they got something wrong if they you know it's just another option for them Mm. do you think like when singapore does something the rest of the region would pay because, you know, I know that um, at least when I worked in uh, Cambodia and in Burma, there's this sense that we always have to emulate uh, Singapore. <laughs> and I'm wondering if you think the enactment of these laws can be seen as sort of an example that other countries might follow suit. Is that something that you think could happen? I think so. I think that ASEAN governments kind of enable each other 
where you see one country, <laughs> one country has this law, and then like the next one is like trying to pass similar things. So at the ASEAN level, it's impossible to put any pressure on each other because everybody's doing the same thing, <laughs> the same awful thing. And I think there is a lot of looking to Singapore as a model to emulate. It is definitely an easy thing to sell to citizens of other. So like it's easy to sell it to Vietnamese and Cambodians and Filipinos who are dealing with corruption and congestion and everything and be like, look, we should be like Singapore. It's so shiny. It's so clean. Everything works <laughs> without really going into the more oppressive stuff. And definitely when I meet other Southeast Asians, and I talk about Singapore, I find that among the more politically aware ones, there's a lot of curiosity about politics and civil society in Singapore because they hear so much about it and about how they should emulate. And there's always the sense that there's something that's not being told. Regarding sort of this freedom of expression issue in Singapore, you were saying earlier that, you know, there is sort of a culture of um, self-censorship. Do you think that's something that the average uh, Singaporean is, uh, like, are they aware that they're doing it? Or do you think they, they register that it's pervasive? I think they they are kind of aware that they're doing it, but I don't know how much of a problem they think it is. So I was, like one of the democracy classroom sessions I had was with a bunch of uni students who weren't super politically aware. And they were talking about fake news and they had a lot of trust in the government. And then I brought up, you know, I didn't bring up Singapore government specifically, but I just brought up theoretically as a point, what about state abuse of power and things like that. And immediately this one student goes, you can't say stuff like that in Singapore, they'll take you away. So clearly something in him, even though he's not politically aware and he doesn't follow the news, Something in him knows that there are things in Singapore you cannot or should not say or that are dangerous to say. But at the same time, he doesn't really talk about it like it's a problem because like, in the next breath, he'll say, but it's fine, I trust the government. And, you know, it's not a problem. We don't have these issues in Singapore. So, yeah, I, I do see this sort of kind of situation where people seem to instinctively censor themselves but at the same time this self-censorship has become so normalized that it's not even seen as something that people worry about generally yeah i mean it is i guess they are think they do realize that there is a sense of um oppression even if they might not use that word to describe it yeah. <laughs> has there been anything that's like changed a lot since you were asked to like testify on the select committee um i think that was just kind of more intense because I kind of knew Flash assumed that I was on the radar already by that point. But then that kind of just confirmed it, particularly when, you know, I get questioned by a committee member and I make some comment about nobody getting sued or jailed when we discuss things and his response is not yes. <laughs> yeah, that's just kind of like, oh, wow, that's not good. After that, the kind of media coverage, the... They put out a synopsis on the parliament website that was really inaccurate and did not accurately convey what I said. And I had to put in a complaint to get it changed. Yeah. Um, Which is ironic like considering and it's then, a select yeah. committee on deliberate online falsehoods. Yeah. <laughs> and just, yeah. And then what happened with New Narrative after that, that was, that was just like so closely on the heels. So that was kind of all together at one go. And yeah, so in terms of timing and everything. Can, can you, like, briefly um, describe what happened with New Narrative? 
Yeah, so New Narrative is a platform that I founded with some friends and we registered it as a media company in the UK, a non-profit. And we wanted to register a Singapore subsidiary so that we would have a legal presence in Singapore. Uh, we published stories about Southeast Asia and we were also holding um, like the democracy classrooms and open meeting. And so we were registering. We had actually applied to register in February. And usually in Singapore, when you register a business, it's very quick. But this one, they had follow-up questions. So we answered all those questions and we didn't hear back. And then about a week or two after the select committee, uh, they sent us an email saying that we'd been rejected, which honestly wasn't a surprise that we'd been rejected. What did surprise me was that they put out a press release oh, wow. to say that we'd been rejected. So I've not seen them do that with any other company. The press release said that we were rejected because it would be contrary to Singapore's national interests to allow us to register. And then it brought up how we had open society funding and how George Soros meddles in other countries' politics. And then they say, you know, we cannot allow Singaporeans being used by foreigners to carry political activity in Singapore. And that was accompanied by, like, full-page coverage in the Straits Times oh with God. massive photos of me and my colleagues. And, yeah, that just... Was there harassment over from the that? Or was there any... Well, in the two days, the two days uh, after the press release, I had a lot of these like Facebook trolls who were telling me that I'm a traitor to the country. And um, yeah, and then there was like two days and then they kind of seemed to all disappear as quickly as they came. So I started to wonder if they were real people. Um, How does it affect you when, you know, you have these people telling you that you're a traitor to the country or like they'll say things. I mean, I've seen your Facebook. You do have a lot of shit. <laughs> um, <laughs> but one of the things they say a lot is like, oh, you're not a true Singaporean. Yeah, um, I, don't, I don't really respond to those anymore. And I don't really feel anything. I just feel like that's kind of sad and frustrating that their definition of a Singaporean and what is a true Singaporean is so narrow and I feel really uncomfortable by this whole like true Singaporean thing also because it so easily tips into xenophobia and racism about who or what is a true Singaporean uh, so I kind of don't respond to those I think in terms of the facts like after the select committee um, it was quite difficult because the select committee itself had kind of been okay like I came out of that feeling generally fine and then I saw the the summary that they put out and it was so inaccurate and I felt it was very unfair yeah it just made it at, at that period of time it made it hard to focus on other things because it just seemed so generally horrible yeah. What would be like your ideal outcome, I guess, after this select committee on deliberate online falsehoods? I know in the, in the beginning you said it's like sort, sort of like a Wayang committee. And then I guess maybe it turned out to be something different than what you expected. Not necessarily a good thing, but did you have any expectations for what comes after the, the committee? And Well, I think the, the original hope was to raise some important questions and issues and I think you know I wish I got to articulate them better in ways that I, I felt like I couldn't because of how I'd been asked questions but at the same time it also the select committee also did draw 
quite a bit of attention among Singaporeans. And if it pushes them to think more about process and how things should be done, because quite a few Singaporeans did seem to feel that it hadn't been done very fairly. And if it does push Singaporeans to think about power and how you know, democratic exercises should actually be carried out, then that's good. Thanks so much to Kirsten Hahn for taking the time to explain things to me. Sorry for all the Skype issues. Are you are you recording now? Yeah. Oh, so it records like yeah. right when you call, basically. It, it's also for network connection on If you heard any buzziness, that was uh, probably my fault. Please check out Kirsten's publication, New Narrative, at newnarrative.com. That's N-E-W-N-A-R-A-T-I-F dot com. They do good work there. So uh, subscribe or go on their website. Or if you're a reporter with a good idea, pitch them. Also, thank you to AsiaWorks for letting me record in their studio. And the theme song you heard in the beginning of the episode is by the very talented Jared Ferry. Playing Me Out is Take Heart by the Sam Willows. They're a Singaporean pop group. I'm Dean Hern Chen, signing off. Thank you so much for listening to Southeast Asia, etc. Take heart, this world is ours. Run high and fast out of coming for us. Take heart, we'll fight the hours.